difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we've podcasted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. On last week's episode, we discussed the classic 1993 film Jurassic Park. But Jurassic Park isn't the end of the Jurassic story. It was followed by the Spielberg-directed The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park, in 1997, and again in 2001 by the Joe Johnson-directed Jurassic Park 3. Then, after a long period of seeming extinction, Jurassic Park, or Jurassic whatever, returned in the form of Jurassic World, directed by Colin Trevorrow, a film set at an active dinosaur park built using the same technology behind Jurassic Park, and despite the disaster that enveloped that park before it even opened. That movie wasn't great, but it was a big hit. The J.A. Bayona directed Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, followed in 2018. After a second half set in a classic old dark house, but one equipped with a cutting-edge lab and dinosaur pens in its basement, the film concluded with dinosaurs finding their way back into the world, presumably to chaotic effect. As Jurassic World Dominion opens, we learn that's true, but only up to a point. Directed by returning Colin Trevorrow, it's set in a world in which dinosaurs have become an expected, if not exactly normal, part of everyday life. They've also become pawns in a game of international espionage involving the tech giant Biosyn, headed by the creepy-slash-charismatic CEO Dr. Lewis Dodgson, played by Campbell Scott. Dodgson's schemes eventually bring together the cast of the original Jurassic Park with Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, the stars of the previous Jurassic World movies. They meet at a high-tech dinosaur-filled facility high in the mountains. We'll talk over what happens there and other dinosaur-related issues after the break. I wanted to show them something that wasn't an illusion. Something that was real. Something that we could see and touch. Creation is an act of sheer will. Life will find a way. can't keep her here forever. They find her, we're never going to see her again. we got to protect her. That's our job. Humans and dinosaurs can't coexist. We created an ecological disaster. Allie Sattler. Alan Grant. You didn't come out all this way just to catch up now did you you coming or what hey let's talk about jurassic world dominion well let's talk about it in terms and of and then fran- let us never speak of it again <laughs> <laughs> okay I, yeah i guess just 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 first opinions on it I'll, I'll say i it is my second favorite jurassic world film that is not high praise i, I hate the first Which... jurassic world so much <laughs> but how about everybody else 
I truly Boo. don't remember the second Jurassic World film. I, I have evidence Kablamo, that I've seen it. Volcano. I, volcano. I don't like remember anything about it. I actually actively like the second one. I think it's I think Bayona is a more interesting director visually. Trevorrow co-wrote the script with Derek Connolly, so you know, all credit to them for the idea. But the idea of like doing a, a haunted house movie but with dinosaurs instead of ghosts, <laughs> no, it works for me. I, I like that one. Well, and I mean, it kind of does what the first Jurassic Park does. Like the first Jurassic Park is kind of like a large haunted house movie. It's just on an island. It's a haunted island movie, an island haunted by dinosaurs, you know, but it's this one place where all this mayhem is happening. And one of my biggest issues with Jurassic World Dominion is it's the sprawl you know like the first Uh half of this film is all over the damn place and like once the film like gets to the biosyn uh (laughs) compound which biosyn come on Mm -hmm. (laughs) it started working a little better for me while it's still like having a lot of really glaring issues but it felt more like a jurassic movie than it did in the first half where it was like a born movie and maybe a little bit of a fast and furious movie <laughs> also the informant don't forget the informant <laughs> yeah. with the with the uh with the agribusiness uh conspiracy oh, God. action like that was my re- my reaction to so much of the movie is like what are you doing what what what's going on here what, what how how is this whole series gone this far astray and that was part of it i mean that you know once once we we get into all of this stuff involving agriculture and these and these locusts that have been developed to only raid independent farms while keeping uh biosyn seed intact and it's just like you know and then and then you get to malta and it becomes a born identity movie it's just like what it what what's going on like this is not working <laughs> this is like this is so far from where you started and i guess you i guess that ends up being you know a fundamental problem with a lot of sequels but almost really glaring in these jurassic movies is that you know you can't do the the wonder of discovery anymore and you can't do everything breaking down because it all everything's already broken down again so you just have to invent new more ridiculous reasons for the dinosaurs to exist you know and be bigger and be genetically modified and you know involve a lot of mark zuckerberg types or whatever it's just it doesn't you know and, and seem to be about five or six different movies smushed together at once but with dinosaurs and uh i was pretty annoyed by this film can i can i blow everybody's mind here you loved, you loved it? it. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't love it. But <laughs> I, I, I kind of dug the aspects of it. Well, maybe this won't blow everybody's mind. It'll just be uh, Tasha disagrees with Scott about everything again. I liked the fact that the movie isn't just like going back to basics and like let's recapitulate Jurassic Park yet another time. Like let's uh-huh. one of the one of my big problems with the Aliens franchise, which this pretty closely resembles in its uh, like thematic return to. There's a company that's trying to turn these things into weapons and profit off of them, and therefore they make things that then break loose and eat people. Like, the Aliens movies, much like the Terminator movies, just keep telling the same story over and over, and I find it pretty dull. I kind of like the fact that this goes into the Bourne Velociraptor. Like, the thing that I liked most about this movie, maybe, was the way it envisions what it would be like to have dinosaurs just, like, roaming loose all over the world and, like, all of the accommodations and problems that it would create. I think sure. it's hilarious. Like, it's it's not... 
I have a uh, a tag on Letterboxd that's liked but didn't respect. And I don't respect this movie's like, hey, let's do Fast and Furious, but with dinosaurs. Hey, let's do Born, but with dinosaurs. Hey, let's have a Star Wars moment in the middle of all of this where we walk into a cantina full of uh-huh. uh, puppets, full uh-huh. of like wretched scum and villainy who are like each doing their like their wild, wacky, underground dinosaur related things. You know, I didn't respect it, but I enjoyed the innovation. I enjoyed the the restlessness of this movie a lot more than I would have if it had just been the same story again. Like as early as Aliens 3, there were scripts roaming around that were going to take the series to Earth and the aliens were going to get loose on Earth and then Earth was just going to have to deal with xenomorphs running around and how that would change things. And we never got that movie, but I kind of feel like we got it here. And I ended up in the exact opposite of the place that Genevieve was. I thought that when we got to the hermetically controlled environment that somehow people can keep sneaking around, that that was a story problem. And when we're telling just yet another story about a tech bro gone bad, which is half of our villains at this point, it got pretty boring. But, you know, when we were roaming the world, seeing what dinosaurs look like in all these different uh, like states and situations, I kind of enjoyed that movie i certainly enjoyed that movie more than i would have enjoyed like let's just copycat everything that the series has done in the past i got two responses yeah. <laughs> uh the first is that, wait, wait, is, wait. that... Is, is one of them holding up your hand in a way to make me calm down and, and stop what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> no i would never i would never do that god that is so stupid oh i hate it so much um anyway so i would say a, a couple of things one is that is that you know, the idea of, in principle, the idea of dinosaurs running amok in the real world, that's a workable idea. I would like to see what uh, Joe Dante does with that idea. I would like to see what Sam Raimi does with that idea. I thought I of not, Gremlins so many times during this movie, Scott. But I think what, I don't think Colin Trevorrow has any wit whatsoever. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, we'll get to the Jurassic Park comparisons, but there's just so many aspects of visual wit in Jurassic Park that Trevorrow is completely incapable or almost disinterested in, in creating and making this as fun as it could be. I mean, as fun as it maybe gets is the Velociraptor chase of Pratt on his stupid motorcycle. <laughs> uh, but, but that's about as good as it gets. And then the other, the other thing I would say too, about the back half of the movie, which is again, not that great for me either, is that at least you get the one, juicy performance in the film which is campbell scott's i really thought that was a really fun version of you know the sort of tech jerk that we've seen in so many movies i i you know i think he he plays that with a certain uh, amount of panache and I, and I enjoyed seeing that character but it's a very like specific like awkward performance mm-hmm. and i i agree that like i mean i think i liked it I, I, I was i was like puzzled by it at first but then by the end i like respected the commitment to it but i mean this is bringing us back to jurassic park but obviously the whole movie is bringing us back to jurassic park like that's dodgson it's dodgson we've got dodgson here from the the it's the same character you know from the very beginning of this franchise a new you actor get the, uh, sh- the shaving cream yeah 
exactly. Um, a new actor, because did you know that that actor was yeah, uh, just, convicted of yeah sexually assaulting a minor? Whoops. Yeah. Oh, good um, wait, wait. No. Yeah, uh, I, Cam- not... Cameron Thor, who played Lewis Dodgson in Jurassic Park in that scene with Wayne Knight. He gives him oh. the Barbasol. Same guy, same character. But oh. um, he was played by Cameron Thor, who uh, was in 2016 sentenced to six years in prison for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl. We can edit this out. That's highly relevant. It's, it's no, information I didn't know. Yeah, and yeah I, mean, I, I didn't, it, I didn't realize that. It seems that. particularly relevant in a movie that's working this hard to bring back the original actors who have, uh-huh. you know, a bunch of people who've tagged in and out of uh, of these trilogies, kind of like trying to reunite as much as possible uh, the original cast while, while bringing in new players. It is kind of a question mark, like why this one guy, like why they didn't bring him back. And uh, that's that's an answer that I was not aware of. Oh man, poor B.D. Wong. <laughs> like, the, the dude has never left that lab. He's just been failing forever in that stupid lab, screw, is screwing up the world. I do like. Uh, I do like how Doctor Wu is just so like defeated with his long hair and sad cardigan by, by this film. It does feel very appropriate to B.D. Wong's uh, tenure in this franchise. Yeah, I think it's just, pretty fascinating how he's he's mutated with the times. I, I think there's an entire essay for some uh, you know lovely freelancer who's not me to write about the changing roles of B.D. Wong from you know bright-eyed up-and-coming background scientist who kind of has a, a 90s air of Asian people are smart that's why we we cast one for a science role to like sharp-edged corporate we do it because it makes money guy to this guy who has a, a strong element I think of neuroatypical like fixated uh, person who's very very smart but not uh, fully keyed into social settings and like has a hard time looking people in the eye or like understanding what people want of him but he, he knows very much what he wants it just seems like that role changes in every movie that it's in to kind of fit, fit what people like see as the needs of the moment. And it, it really reflects the changing tastes in uh, like both blockbusters and the shape of these movies in particular. I have to note uh, one of my favorite dissolve moments uh, the subject of B.D. Wong was like they were they teased that casting back when we were had the newsreel. And it was designed in such a way to where to where aggregator, aggregators would, of course, say Jurassic World, you know, announces the return of an old cast member. And then, of course, you'd have to click to see who that was. Mm. And so I think I, I don't know if I had them had a news real person do it or I wrote it myself. But I do re- remember just go ahead and putting it in the line, and it's B.D. Wong. <laughs> Jurassic World teases uh, that old Jurassic Park uh, cast member and it's BD Wall. So you just, it's all right there in the headline. That said, though, I mean, like, good for him. Like, good for that man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, whenever I see somebody like like James Hong, who has stayed in the industry long enough to outlive that era of we don't know what to do with Asian people except follow, like, like, the stereotype. Here's the stereotype that we had for them in the 60s. Here's a completely different stereotype for the 70s, different one for the 80s. Now it's the 90s. They're the science bros. Like anybody who's stuck with the industry long enough to like go through all of those changes and come out on the side of now he's a character with a personality. Like now he's a person as opposed to a a racist plot function. Like good for BD Wong. 
like good for him for cashing the paychecks, but also good for him for surviving that era of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, you know, it gives you a little bit of something in the in this movie uh, uh, for sure because he's he's got. Though, I mean, how many times do we have to hear that this that this that this kid's mother is brilliant? Like, how many people how right, many people right. tell, and, and tell like, her that? And he's he has to explain. I guess the most convoluted part of this movie. It's really hard to with, with no, to decide. With, with no payoff as well. Yeah, I mean, but the, you know, all the time we spend with the cloned girl amounts to nothing, right? I mean. No, I mean, there's a payoff in the end. He he has a bug in a box and he lets the bug go. Yeah, sure. Because as okay. we all know, like DNA is uh, spread through sneezes. So the bug goes and sneezes on other other bugs. Yeah, they, like they're all going to just I thought they're, I thought the, all the I thought all the bugs were just going to crash to the earth after the after that. But maybe it takes a little longer. Also, as a noted fear of uh, bugs and swarms in particular, oh, oh, oh. I resent not being warned ahead of time what I was in for. We, did, with we those didn't locusts. know. We were all I know. The same no, time. no. I, 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 I resent the world, uh, and and I guess maybe the <laughs> the people who cut the trailer. I love the fact that that the destroy all the locusts button <laughs> by lighting them on fire thing did not work. Oh, I <laughs> the way I, it I, did. I, I will say, I, I, I will gi- I will give Trevorrow the flaming plume of the locusts as a as a visual that I did uh, find quite effective. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it was also kind of a Jurassic Park style failure too. Of just yeah, kind of like it, oh, we just sure. kind of we kind of screwed that up. <laughs> it's it's definitely a life will find a way. Like life will find a way to burn your forest down as revenge for uh, for killing them. But yeah, it, it makes perfect sense that they somehow had never gotten around to testing the swarm of uh, giant superbugs on fire uh, de- defense <laughs> mechanisms. Like it's, it's very hard to do a live test of that. So not surprising that it doesn't work. It's also just a you know a, a great little piece of of cinematic revenge. Like you know you you press the button that's supposed to uh, kill everything, and instead it completely wrecks your scheme. Like I think Dodgson's response to that that's basically just a damn it kind of thing is is kind of hilarious. Like you you say Trevorrow can't do humor, the whole Dodgson character it ends up I think being pretty funny. Oh, for- Campbell Scott, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm more inclined to attribute that to to Scott, but sure, yeah, I mean, I guess we can give Trevorrow that as well. He don't praise <laughs> the machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, we're going to get into the cast in uh, in connections, but can I mean we we we've got to talk yes. about the hand thing, right? <sighs> like Mel Magazine did this whole piece on how that's what people associate with the the Jurassic World films is uh, Chris Pratt's stupid hand thing, which in this movie they turn into a meme that like practically every cast member has to do, and it's infuriating. It was it was <laughs> dumb when it was one guy doing it to one set of dinosaurs, but now it's a magic trick that works on every dinosaur for every human. What the hell? Well, you yeah. see that the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex—they have very short arms, and they can't, they can't, they that they can't, that can't kind of like distract their their prey quite as quite. Can't put them in a trance-like state because they can't really—they don't have the reach for it. So wait, are you they're, telling they're me that like, all they're of just these... like in awe of how long yeah. humans' arms are? Right. It's all just of these like, dinosaurs whoa. are just like, oh, I, I can't fu- do that. I'm Whoa. focusing on something new here. Look at how uh, far uh, away from his chest his his grasping mechanism it's is astonishing. Yeah, 
Yeah. I, That's pretty much I, what I, I think know. when I look at, at Chris Pratt, too. Like, look at how far away from his chest his grasping mechanism is. And then I just kind of go Tharn, too. I've been subjected to a lot of sort of explanations of, of why Raptor Hand, as I call it, would, would work since I'm uh, <laughs> griping about it over the last 48 hours. Uh, and they all, they all come down to some sort of, like, you know, showing dominance, like, make yourself bigger, like you would with a bear type of animal behavior, whatnot. But... <laughs> Like, I can maybe buy that in the context of the first movie where Owen is like training this pack of raptors. He's kind of, you know, like, again, Jurassic World, not a good movie, very stupid, but at least like within the the logic and I use that term generously, that the film is setting up like, okay, the raptor hand makes sense. But as you say, Tasha, like, by the time of this movie, it's just a meme and anyone can wield it against any dinosaur, trained feral or or whatever. And it's just, and it just like becomes a sort of all purpose dinosaur off switch. And it feels like they just like ran out of ideas for how to get out of dino confrontation. So, you know, pull the emergency raptor hand lever and and move on. I've been watching these uh, YouTube videos that's just a woman who has a teeny tiny microphone that she like goes to animal preserves and like pretends to interview the animals. (laughs) And like roughly four fifths of animals, when you hold something out to them, they bite it. And every time somebody stuck a hand up for a, a dinosaur, I would I would just think, okay, this is this is the one where it just goes, oh, okay, thanks, thanks, chomp. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's for Werner Herzog's uh, Jurassic World. <laughs> oh, the dinosaur man. world is a symphony of that. murder. I would absolutely watch that. Oh, Jurassic World Dominion! Yeah. What what are we gonna do? <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think we're gonna talk about it in relation to Jurassic Park shortly after a break. You remember how we used to get the Raptors in the truck? Yeah. Yeah. You're up. No. At the last minute dive roll. I don't dive roll. You'll be fine. I never got the timing right. Now? Any minute. Any minute now. Now. No. No. So now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think they're dinosaurs in both, right? <laughs> There was at least one dinosaur in in a scene in uh, Dominion, right? Yeah. (laughs) Again, I I looked away from the screen, like much like I kept feeling like I missed something with Laura Dern and the poop. I felt like I maybe missed something in Dominion where I looked away from it and there wasn't. There are are dinosaurs in Jurassic World Dominion. There there are not dinosaurs in Dominion, a prequel to The Exorcist. Oh, okay. It all falls together now. (laughs) We should talk about the changing use of dinosaurs, which is quite striking in that uh-huh. dinosaurs in there's you know they're either either treated with a certain amount of reverence in the first one or they're monsters that will eat you whereas here there's something in between there, there's been an evolution i guess or uh, between how how these mm-hmm. folks look at dinosaurs is that is that the right word Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, nowhere is that more clear than in the Velociraptors, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we should also probably talk about Jurassic World uh, introducing hybrids in, into the equation. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the 
uh, along with the T-Rex, the Velociraptors are sort of like the emblem of this whole franchise. And the, the T-Rex has stayed fairly consistent in uh, how it's it's used, I think, in, in all these films. But the, the raptors are a whole other thing. And it really, I think, comes down to what Jurassic World established with, with Owen and the training of them. And then Fallen Kingdom with the like military weaponization <laughs> attempt to oh, weaponize right. them. You yeah. know, like it's it's wild. And like the Velociraptors as they were introduced in Jurassic Park are maybe not deeply rooted in the <laughs> the prehistoric record uh in in terms of realism, but you know, they are clearly dinosaurs you know like but by the time of jurassic world they're like the, they become this sort of like other thing like they're they're different from all the other well, jurassic the, park they world just dinosaurs. have that intelligence right i yeah. mean that, that's the idea they're they're going to be the second most intelligent you know species on mm-hmm. on earth and so and so with that intelligence comes the possibility to alter their behavior for for them to be able to have a more complex you know emotional response uh, to humans, I, I just think I just think as a, I mean, I guess it, it, it's a way of moving the franchise forward and and you know mixing it up a little bit. But I also think it's a, the the peril of it, which is becomes clear here a lot of the time, is that it becomes sentimental and gloppy, and and um, and it and it takes the threat out of out of these things that were just so terrifying in the first Jurassic Park. I scoffed a little at that whole second most intelligent species on Earth. It's like these these raptors might be smart, but my, my dog's about as smart as, as as blue the raptor here, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> how, how much how much time does your uh, dog spend opening doors, like well, operating door okay. handles? Okay, okay. My cat opens the door, opens our door. Yeah, uh, cats cats do do these things. I mean, the thing yeah. is, oh like, no, we're not getting this. We're not turning this into a cats versus dog things, guys. <laughs> no, we're we're not. Uh, what are the direction I was going is like that. Yes, dogs can uh, open doors. Pig and dolphins are really smart. There are a lot of other animals that uh, that have intellect. But one of the things that that people say about animals with high intellect and the ability to learn and adapt and do things like using tools or, or manipulating tools is that they have personality. And that's what they're getting at here is going from velociraptors that don't have a whole lot of personality they're just lizardy killing machines to kind of just feeding the fantasy of what would what would it be like to have a best friend that was also a a dinosaur you know i think anybody that's really fascinated with dinosaurs as a kid somewhere in the back of their head is thinking more about like what could what if i could ride one what if one could come to school with me and like less about boy wouldn't it be terrifying at every single moment to live in a world that had dinosaurs because i might get eaten the barneyfication of the uh velociraptor that make it your (laughs) friend uh i don't know i just like I, I, uh, i mean i was already just you know, obviously very much out on this film. So when you do get this emotional payoff at the end uh, with with Chris Pratt's character, the Owen returning this uh, Velociraptor blue. child, baby blue to, to blue. Beta. And then, and then having like a moment where they're running off, but then, then blue kind of comes back. And they kind of look at each other and they in acknowledgement of, of uh, as parents, they're both parents, (laughs) they're both parents. It's just like, who've both just gotten their children back. 
I can't. They're I can't. clone I mean, children. It's the the you know the anthropomorphizing of of uh, the Velociraptor. I can't do it again. Werner Herzog would never. Um, and uh, I, I I couldn't. I hated that moment so much. I thought, I thought <laughs> you were going to say the so... anthropomorphizing of, of Chris Pratt. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no, I, I will yeah. say the evolution I do like between these movies is is I thought. Owen and Claire, Bryce Dallas Howard's character, were just the most unbearable protagonists imaginable in the first Jurassic World film. And by now, they're just kind of bland and dull, uh, which is a step up, believe it or not. You know, am I alone in that? Yeah, you're alone in that. They're still obnoxious and awful here. Okay, okay. Uh, especially, especially <laughs> Owen. He is less obnoxious than in the first movie, where he he is just a an alpha male naysayer who like sneers at everybody he encounters, and somehow for some reason people love it. Uh, like I had not seen the first Jurassic World until prepping for this this podcast, and the sequence of events whereby. A winged rat, uh, like a winged dinosaur, almost tears his face off, and Claire saves him by like butt stroking it off of him. And her <laughs> two nephews see this and immediately decide that Owen is the coolest guy ever, and only he can keep them safe. It's just is maddening, like maddening in the extreme. What the heck? It has been long enough that since I've seen Jurassic World that I have no idea what you mean by butt stroking the dinosaur <laughs> off of him. When you when you use a when you use a gun as a club and you hit somebody with a butt of a gun, that's called okay. butt stroking. Okay. Uh, a, a, no, no dinosaurs I, get their butts stroked. Oh, that, that was clear to me, Tasha. I don't, I don't know why, why everyone's confused. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm sorry. I've completely derailed everything with uh, talking about Chris, Chris Pratt and dinosaurs and butt stroking. Yeah. I can see where that would be distracting. Yeah. But now he's just uh, like he has, he has no value in that first film except as a, a superior smug ass and like. At least here, he's like a weirdo idiot that makes no sense because he makes promises to uh, things that don't speak English and then crosses <laughs> the world in order to keep those promises. And I believe it's Jeff Goldblum who calls him out on it in just mm-hmm. a you did what now kind of way. Yeah, you made a promise to a dinosaur. <laughs> One of the la- few laugh lines in this movie for me, I will admit. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen writers kind of talking about like the arc of the Jurassic World movies kind of like trying to weaponize Chris Pratt's like particular smarm in the same way that the Guardians of the Galaxy movies do without understanding that the whole point of the Guardians of the Galaxy's movies is that like he's kind of a loser you know mm-hmm. he's he is a, a character of fun to be laughed at for his many failings and his his big ego and Jurassic Park puts those same failings in that same ego front and center, but then has the entire world just like kneeling to tongue bathe him uh, for how cool he is. And it's, it's never not tedious. Tongue bathing and butt stroking. <laughs> what is, what is, is feel like we've tongue already, bathing like, is, is also when you take a gun and hit somebody what, with the butt like... of it. There are a lot of words for that. It turns out. <laughs> oh, it, well, I, I would say, you know, one connection between these, movies that that of course is made explicitly by jurassic world dominion is bringing together these characters that we associate with the jurassic world series with the characters that we associate with jurassic park with uh, of bringing claire and owen together with uh, you know malcolm and and uh <laughs> alan grant and, and e- ellie right. statler and ellie yes malcolm and ellie and and alan and it just doesn't i mean that is a 
tough comparison. That is not a flattering comparison to see those groups of people side by side in terms of uh, our affection for them, in terms of the pull that they, they've had on us throughout the, the course of these movies. It's a ploy that's supposed to pay off and kind of bring you know all of these you know six movies together, but it really ends ends up underlining how little Claire and Owen have given us over the course of these three movies, and how much you know affection we might ha- we we have in reserve for the the three who are coming here from Jurassic Park. Well, and it throws a kid in the mix too, and obviously the kids from Jurassic Park, Tim and and Lex, they. Are, are not back here unless I, I missed something. Have, have they ever did they no. they showed up in Lost World maybe or did they I don't know that they did, did they? It, maybe not. I, I don't yeah. I don't know. But it, but at any rate, like we in Jurassic World Dominion we get Maisie Lockwood who is introduced at in Fallen Kingdom. She's a clone child of uh-huh. uh, Hammond's silent partner who was also I mean, like Trevorrow added a lot of mythology, a whole lot of mythology uh, to to these movies. But it struck me during this movie uh, and, and during this pairing, like how much the idea of parenthood creeps in to this this franchise. I mean, mm. it's it's in Jurassic Park too. Like uh, Ellie and Alan have this whole sort of thing about you know her wanting kids and and him not and it gets referenced in dominion when they meet back up after many years and he asks about her kids and you know it's clear that or it's implied that that is you know why they didn't work out and then lo and behold they're thrown into uh, this scenario with the, with a kid again but now sort of the parental dynamic has been transferred on to owen and claire but you know, it, it, generally speaking, like this franchise seems to have a little bit of a fixation on the idea of cishet couples procreating, or I guess maybe not procreating in the in the case of, of Maisie, but I guess of just being <laughs> parents. Um, and it is kind of an it is kind of interesting to place that alongside the franchise's interest in sort of genetic engineering and and cloning and biological manipulation. But also in reproduction. I mean, the sure. whole thing about the reason that they want to get their hands on Blue's baby is because Blue has monitor lizard DNA and that enables her to reproduce without a mate. The whole, you know, arc in the original Jurassic Park about how the, the dinosaurs, some of the dinosaurs have turned male because that's something that certain uh, reptiles can do. And they've got reptile DNA in them and they're they're reproducing in an unauthorized way. Like the whole series, it's not just cishet couples. It's not even just yeah human couples it's not even just couples like the whole series Mm -hmm. is kind of obsessed with uh reproduction and parenthood and i would argue that that all just kind of loops back to life will find a way i I think that part of what we're seeing reflected throughout this uh series is just kind of the obsession with like parental relationships you know the, the people hammond's obsession with like being present Every time one of his dinosaurs hatch and imprinting Mm. it on him is another kind of like twisted parental uh, relationship. The relationship between the scientists that are producing these dinosaurs in the first place and these creations that they lose control of is a kind of parental relationship. Like all of the themes here kind of tie back to like, what do you produce and what does that say about you? How do you connect it? Can you control it? No, you can't because chaos theory. And I'm just now recalling that like Claire's whole 
arc in Jurassic World is kind of like her embracing motherhood because in Jurassic World she's like introduced as the it's like those kids aunt right she she's like yeah they're her nephews yeah and you know she's this this buttoned up corporate type who doesn't know what to do with children and now and now you know she's as as Tasha said crossing the world for a well a child that a clone child it's not her own you know I was a little surprised that Jurassic World Dominion put so much emphasis on the the split between Ellie and uh, Grant over specifically children, because the first Jurassic Park very much has this arc of like, he does not like children, children are chaotic, Mm -hmm. and then he ends up taking care of them. Yeah, why? Why does he never have them? Like, I, what? There's, the there's like even at like at the like end that, of the movie when he and Ellie reconcile when they come back together and he's got the kids with him. They share a look. Like he kind of looks yeah. at the kids and look at, looks at her in a way that's clearly meant to convey like you were right. Kids are nice. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's something that's, in there about how people fundamentally really don't change. But no, I mean, it shouldn't. It, that shouldn't be the case. It's like the movie's all about that. I mean, and that was one of the things we didn't really get into when we were kind of breaking down all the characters in the first part. Is that is that that again? A lot of movies would would be all about making that argument to you know trigger a maternal instinct, right? Of uh, you know, you, you expect you expect the kids to be making the case that she should ha- want to ha- have have kids, and it, it, and it's and it's kind of refreshing that it that it's that it ends up being Sam Neill's character who is r- reluctant and who's who's having to kind of take these kids on and kind of discover his own kind of paternal instinct and you know for that to be dropped and 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 not you know and for that relationship not really to have continued from there is is kind of mysterious to me um because because you know that's kind of what the first movie was about is kind of convincing him you know that he has that instinct too and that he you know he can really you know feel something and want want to for children in Jurassic Park 3, which Sam Neill uh, returned for after uh, not appearing in, in Lost World, you know, that also has a, a paternal storyline, but it's with William H. Macy's character. But uh, once again, like Alan Grant is sort of put in a position of, of saving children or saving a child in the, in the case of Jurassic Park 3. So it, it's something that his character it, it's something that is like very connected to that character he just wants to be the cool uncle yeah i mean that's that's kind the of cool. i think what he's best suited for right like from the very that very first scene with the in jurassic park with the the raptor claw and him laying out like that that's cool uncle behavior that's not dad behavior <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool also uncle behavior? It's, it's kind of mean uncle behavior right <laughs> it's sure. wc fields go away kid you bother me uh, behavior yeah. you know it's mm. it's humor at the expense of the child you know this scaring the kid to make a point that hey you're a bratty kid and like you need to be you need to be taken down a peg it's someone who can grow into cool uncle behavior i mean i will say like much as uh, i i kind of called this scene out in in part one of this conversation but i really think that that scene in the the crook of the tree where mm. the kids are exhausted and, and terrified and traumatized and they just immediately when Alan Grant sits down, they just automatically go to him and kind of nestle up against his armpits. Like they're clearly expecting to huddle together for, for protection and warmth and for him to keep them safe. And Sam Neill just has this look on his face that's like, oh, God, what's going? Oh, OK. I love okay. that look. <laughs> We're doing this, I guess. And then he puts his arms around them and mm-hmm. and everything seems a little bit all right, even though it's all terrible. And it's like 
it's a very sweet moment. It's but it's also a very comforting moment. You know, yeah. it's 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 a moment of of people embracing each other in the middle of of catastrophe and and terror, and like so many like thriller blockbusters full of action, just again don't take time for that or don't don't think about that and how important that moment of human connection is. I just I love that moment. Yeah, I think I think the worst uh, you know uh, indictment of Jurassic World Dominion is Jurassic Park because you know. I, <laughs> I, I, I was looking back, I, I tried to do this, you know, but I was writing, when I was writing the keynote, it's like everything I'm saying, I'm praising Jurassic Park for is what Jurassic World Dominion does poorly. But I, I wonder though, if we want to cut a little slack to Trevorrow at all, where do you take this, this, this series six films in? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like in, in some ways, you know, I, I've, I think the first three Jurassic Park films, the, the first two sequels, and of course, the original, or I mean, the, the first two sequels are, are, are pretty good. You know, they're stepped down from the original, but pretty good. But they also kind of do the same thing. And Lost World brings dinosaurs to uh, San Diego, <laughs> but but uh, but you know, that's kind of its big innovation. And then the third one is just a trip back. But I think you know, at least you know, it's an awkward genre mashup. But it's you know, it's at least it's something. By trying to, you know, trying to make this into kind of a spy thriller, I don't know. Maybe is do you see is this this kind of inedible like like sequel rot that we're encountering here, or is it, or is this like a particular kind of screw up to to this this film and this filmmaker? I, I'm I mean, going to go back to I I kind of like it. I I like the attempt <laughs> to do something new. I I like the well, fact that this was movie has a like bunch of different rat. flavors. I, I just yeah. it's just just tough to argue that it's a successful attempt. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. It's a great big sloppy mess of a, a movie. But again, like I, I I learned this from my husband. I always appreciate great big sloppy messes of movies that don't know what they want to be more than I appreciate soulless clones of previous movies. Mm-hmm, like better yeah. that it be too, too big and, and too awkward and trying to do too many things and switching tones constantly and smooshing together these characters that don't go together particularly well than just, you know, uh, relentlessly copycatting uh, a previous movie. Though, though, I would say that a movie like Jurassic Park 3 is kind of, you know, this streamlined 90-minute B-movie version of what Jurassic Park was doing. And to me, that's a far more satisfying experience than than kind of like this conceptually murky, undisciplined, two-and-a-half-hour bunch of stuff that is, it <laughs> is long. Jurassic World Dominion. Lord, it um, is long. Oh man, can we talk about the other thing too? I want to you know, you talk about the comparing, you know, Jurassic Park with with Dominion is about the way information is revealed. Uh you know, cuz I one of the things I really love about Jurassic Park is that kind of silly theme park cartoon that they have to sit down and, and watch because it's so well incorporated and such a fun parody of of the types of disneyfied exp- you know animated explanations that you get for thing things and you're getting good solid info about how how all of this how this part came to pass bingo you know, and then we, and then, dna <laughs> right I, I mean all that stuff is terrific and then we get to the beginning of jurassic world dominion and it's all of this n- clunky sort of now this oh that opening was so so bad bad. 
awful. So bad. And, it, oh, and, it, and, and they come back to it end. at the end. They, yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, we all are trying to figure out how to live together. And we're doing this in the form of a, you know. Web video. Uh, of a web video that I already find annoying in the in the real world as it is. All those now this videos, I can't stand seeing those things on on Twitter. I, I'm certainly not going to want to have them reproduced to kind of explain, get us up to date about how this world came to exist. And it's just they're, they're, it's such a clumsy way of revealing information that just Spielberg was not guilty of that at all. So I didn't mind now this video so much because I thought there were some actual neat ideas in there that I hope the film would explore and uh, which it really pretty much does, does not. The one that killed me was when I was thinking about how gracefully Ian Malcolm's stuff is incorporated in the, in Jurassic park. uh, Whereas here it just stops cold for a lecture where of him, mm-hmm. like you know, just just talking talking to uh, Im, you know his fellow employees at Biosyn <laughs> for what feels like oh, fifteen straight minutes. I'm sure it's not, but but it is. It's such a you know it brings the film to such a dead halt. It's such a cliche too, like the the scene where our our old uh, friend Kyle Ryan at the AV Club used to constantly threaten to um, put together an inventory of Doctor Science explains the theme, where the you know primary sin there was the Da Vinci code and like tom hanks standing on a stage explaining the theme of the movie uh, to a bunch of like awestruck uh, students hanging on his every word but it you know it, it goes back even further to movies as as bad as jade if anybody remembers that like misbegotten mess of a movie where you've got a college lecturer explaining the themes of the movie it's just or as, or as good as psycho <sighs> Ooh, yeah, there you go. Like the guy stands on stage and it's it's usually a guy uh, and delivers a lecture to a rapt audience who wants to take in the themes of the movie is like a really, really corny device. That said, though, I, I do really like the idea that Ian Malcolm rock star scientist who speaks in TED talks and has always been like more trendy than necessarily insightful and just has the one message over and over, but like repackaged in like flashy ways for the moment. It makes so much sense that he would end up on the staff of like an Elon Musk type, Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of like peddling his, his shiny TED talk theories to uh, the employees who like would hail him as a guru because he's so super smart. Like I, I did like that as the evolution of where that character would go. To return to that uh, now uh, next segment and sort of the way information is is doled out, I, I want to again refer back to the the very very opening scene of, of Jurassic Park, uh, the shoot her the you know nighttime, you know raptor transfer gone gone awry scene, and like as far as setting the stage and the stakes. It's so much more effective without actually telling us anything directly, you know, compared to this like three minute pre because both are like pre title card segments, you know, they're like the the opening flourish of, of this film. And it's just so striking to me putting them next to each other, how Jurassic Park just leans into that sort of Spielbergian, uh, you know, not not showing us, much less telling us everything, but just giving us the sense of, of dread and, and awe, you know, and, and that sets the table for what's to come. 
compared to this this video, <laughs> this web video that just tells us everything that has happened in the world since the end of Fallen Kingdom, which one of my favorite images in the whole franchise is in Fallen Kingdom, the the fall of of Jurassic World and that that Brachiosaurus, uh, you know, being engulfed in flames. And it's just, it's really affecting like that is is like burned in my brain to a certain extent. And like, the emotional impact of that scene, like I want to see that carried over as the the introduction to this final Jurassic World. You know, I want to have some sort of like emotional visceral reaction to this new reality, like show us some interaction of dinosaurs in the world that gives us the feeling of what it is to exist in this world, not a, a news segment that just, you know, lays out a bunch of things that happened it just it, it feels so much less effective it's just a bunch of stuff that happened now this yeah <laughs> <laughs> now this is kind of the guide, kind of the narrative guiding principle of this film isn't it right yeah. also, also i'm starting to realize that i just really like images in this franchise where things are on fire like I like the I like the the Brachiosaurus <laughs> oh. in flames. I like the the locusts on on fire. Just set everything on fire, and I'll like it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fire in Fallen Kingdom with the volcano going yeah. kablooey. I, I like the view from the the mount in Dominion, where they're just kind of looking around it. You know, they they created these locusts to destroy people's fields, and instead they've destroyed their their own forest, and they're just surrounded by the smoking embers of the kingdom they created. Like I I think that's. Uh, a nice little bit of uh, poetic justice in this way. I put this in my review, but I feel like the biggest gap in wonder is when they repeat Laura Dern's like look of amazement expression from the first Jurassic Park in this, and it's like her looking at a field that's been half eaten by locusts. Like, oh, I guess that's where we are with the series now. You know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, all absolutely. Right. Have we made all the connections we could possibly make between these two films? We absolutely haven't. I, the thing that I want to call out most that I, I think is really interesting about uh, these two films is that they both center on a, a turncoat employee. Like all of the action in both of these films happens because of a turncoat employee. But, but in Jurassic in Park, yeah. yeah, in Jurassic Park, it's uh, like once again, our fat, sloppy, stupid uh, cartoon villain that everybody hates because he's a computer nerd. And in this one, it's a, a principled young man who who's a whistleblower you know who not only like takes the time to undermine this like like pretty devastating corporate scheme which i gotta say i i don't i may i probably do not know enough about genetic engineering but i had a really hard time buying i fixed your your genetic code by giving you a, a shot and we're gonna fix these giant grasshoppers by like infecting them with DNA, but I had no problem whatsoever believing that a corporation would like create genetically engineered insects that would destroy everybody else's property except theirs. Like that, I just thought that they were setting up something really interesting there. Some, you know, like the little Monsanto illusion, GMOs and, and whatnot. You know, like they they like seeded this. You know, that they were going to say something or make a statement, but it ended up just being sort of uh, you know. Well, it's one of a thousand too. things, but yeah. I mean, 
mean, I think that what they're what they're saying there is basically like you can't trust corporations. It's Mm -hmm. it's always interesting to me when films do this kind of like here's a way that technology could be used and it could be really bad. And then like the solution is to have like a a hero come along and punch it, basically. Like (laughs) I can absolutely see something like this happening within the next 50 years where somebody decides to like create a pathogen or a, a strain of disease or a genetically engineered creature to benefit their company by destroying other people's property. And I think what's going to happen is that they're going to get insanely rich and be uh, above the law and there's not there's not going to be any prosecution. So I, I don't think that there's going to be somebody that comes along and punches it. So like the whistleblower tactic here is is just really so key to the entire story. And it's definitely kind of brought across as like, here's a young person who bought into the the Google style Kool-Aid of like, we're doing hip, new, cutting edge, trendy tech stuff. We're run by a genius and we're saving the world. And then realized that wasn't it and like did what he could to stop it. Like that, that seems like the hero of the moment culturally that we're looking for in the same way tech bro with unlimited money and unlimited power and no ethics is kind of the villain of the moment culturally. His, his dad is Detective Pikachu, so he raised him well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's a film, you think, expressing a certain amount of guilt in that premise of, of, a, of a large corporation sort of gobbling up your small independent... <laughs> farmers right i mean isn't that kind of what jurassic these these franchise movies are doing these these large corporations just just completely eradicating the the ecosystem for you know small independent uh uh, farmers slash filmmakers no small independent dinosaur movies to this day uh do not understand that argument like independent movies have more ways of reaching the public than ever before more channels more opportunities yes yes they do scott do they they or is do they or 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 can you watch jurassic world and uh in the in top gun maverick at your local landmark cinema well uh, maybe you don't have as much instead of uh instead of independent movies maybe you don't have as much opportunity to see them in multiplexes but the Uh only people going to multiplexes (laughs) these days are mostly people that want to see like movies that you have to see on the big screen like you have the opportunity to see smaller movies but that's a whole different argument (laughs) i I mostly just want to like i want to look at the fact that both of these movies are about a bunch of people with ideals in one case sort of good ideals and in one case really bad ideals and like the one person that comes along and and changes things like to me both of these movies kind of have a message of how easily one person can make a difference how easily one person can upset the apple cart and there's a strong moral consideration there of like not only what you do matters but like what you do can can change things significantly based on like whether you're a, a selfish asshole or somebody like looking out for other people. So that sort of uh, is a good segue into what I consider to be the, the most important connection of all between these two films, which is the Barbasol can, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which thank God they, they got the Barbasol can, which can it be the same one? Because was it? It was like buried under mud on Isla Nubar. Yeah. Isla Nubar. Uh, like, like, was, didn't, was, they, was, didn't they dig it up in Jurassic Park too? Like with no, a. Uh, no, I don't think so. Not that I can. Not I, that I recall. I could swear uh, it's it's been forever, but I could swear that they like used a um uh, what do you call a metal detector to find it and uh, and swoop it away. 
You, you may be right. I, the Lost World is like the only one I haven't revisited in, in this millennium. But that's just maybe uh, what I why I bring that up is just to I feel like we have to note just the insane amount of callbacks uh, in Jurassic World Dominion to Jurassic Park specifically. Not just the Barbasol can that, that Dodgson has, but the fact that he is killed in the exact same way by the exact same dinosaur that took yep. out Ned- Nedry. You know, something as, as blatant as that to something as subtle as Jeff Goldblum buttoning his uh, his shirt a couple more buttons when he gets a weird look for how much of his chest is showing. Like, I, I feel so conflicted about recognizing and, and getting a little hit of enjoyment mm-hmm. out of that thing because it feels like in the moment it feels good, but when you think about it for a second, it's, like, it's so cynical, you know? But again, if I want to cut Trevorrow and just the film in general, some slack. Like, you know, these are Jurassic Park and Dominion are ostensibly bookends. Like, I don't believe there are any plans to continue the Jurassic World franchise beyond this. I think well, it's just going to be too. If it you, makes you money. say that, but you know, sure, yeah. You I, just let uh, it. Ra- I, I'm Jurassic, yeah. pl- Jurassic Planets next. You put them all on a planet. You know what could go wrong? Uh, I have. I want to. I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but I do have an answer to this. Uh-huh. The Barbasol can is a key, is the central element of Jurassic Park: The Game, a 20, 2011 release from Telltale Games, but is not oh. in, it's not in Lost World. Okay, so so like what like the whole, the game is retrieving the Barbasol can. I you know uh, what? Keep talking. I'll have an answer. For okay. okay. <laughs> wow, I, I have such a vivid memory of that thing being unearthed and and me kind of going that, like, well, okay, wait, what? We were we were told that that thing could only last like. 36 hours or something before the, right. the yeah. cooling failed the can, the can is going to get its own peacock series which is like, <laughs> exciting okay. for the can genevieve how how hard did you like laugh or groan depending on your your personal response in that moment when the t-rex crossed behind the big circular fountain in Tasha, order to recreate I, I, the logo it was literally like on the tip of my tongue i was about to t- to bring it up as you were uh, as, as as you started talking about it I mean, I, I think that was in the trailer, actually, that, that mm-hmm. image. Like, I think we got a preview of, of, of that. So um, I think by the time I, I saw it in in action in the film, I was I was fully in grown territory. But, <laughs> you know, it, it is just it, it's a just a really good example of Dominion's commitment to slash obsession with iconography, the iconography of of this series of franchise and again, of Jurassic Park in particular which it does feel like it's trying to trying to form some sort of like bookend with. And sure, yes, the franchise will probably continue in some way beyond this. But if, you know, I, I think by virtue of the three originals returning for this movie and only this movie, Jurassic Park and Dominion do have this very clear relationship to each other, um, more so than any other two films in this six film series. So... You know, it's kind of like what Tasha was saying about not respecting, but like recognizing the attempt to like to do something with, uh, you know, putting all this, you know, these action movie conceits out there and then just adding dinosaurs. Like, 
I recognize don't necessarily respect, um, but, you know, can kind of maybe derive a little enjoyment out of, you know, this of, of Dominion just kind of leaning real hard into the mythology, the, the iconography of Jurassic Park. And, it, you know, it does it with a little humor, I think. Like, with you know, we, we dragged the film a little bit for not having a lot of, you know, humor to it. But I think the the Ian Malcolm shirt moment, you know, is, is, is an example. And there's, you know, a, a lot of those uh, little sort of, I don't even want to call them laugh lines, but but knowing half smile lines, uh, you know, are, are rooted in those callbacks. It's a very, these are very wink wink moments. And it's very hard to do a, a wink wink. You recognize this without like some form of smile. There's just, there's not really the serious, humorless uh, wink wink. You recognize this moment. It's just, it's not exactly a thing. It's just not how, it's not how nostalgia works. Nostalgia is a, a soft emotion. And uh, like if you, if you do it humorlessly, it's just, oh, okay, that again. It's, it's just, it's like, stealing from the past as opposed to sharing a, a moment of recognition. We didn't talk at all about uh, these two films' use of uh, characters of color, specifically black characters. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, Samuel yeah, L. Jackson. I was going to say as, we can't not t- mention Samuel Jackson. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson showing up as like just a very minor player in a, a movie. Like it's been a while since I've I've seen a movie where he's very clearly like you know, tech number two, as opposed to like having a small Nick Fury like role that's that's still meant to be like very significant in its uh, in its portent and its Sam Jackson-ness. It was a year away from Pulp Fiction with, uh, right? I mean, wasn't that Pulp Fiction 94? Yes. And he was also, you know, he's still at the the phase in his career where his character could die off screen and it Mm -hmm. wasn't considered remarkable that we we don't get a moment for him. In Jurassic World Dominion, like there are several characters of color, most specifically uh, Kayla Watts, the pilot played by DeWanda Wise, who like her character is very much kind of a Han Solo character. Mm-hmm. And she's maybe not necessary to the movie except as a device. But I really liked her character. Me, like, too. Me too. I like her personality. <laughs> I like mm-hmm. the way she's like clearly putting on this this tough as nails uh take no prisoner kind of thing but she's got like morals lurking underneath that kind of get in the way of her like just getting the paycheck that she wants and living the life she wants i think that that character is pretty thin on the page and she just gives it a lot of personality mostly through like facial expressions and body language i i really enjoyed her presence even if she is like playing 12th fiddle in a gigantic overpacked ensemble i liked her too and one of the things i liked about her was how she sort of tempered owen's uh obnoxiousness and and alpha-ness you know because a lot of the two of them spend a, a good portion of, of the movie together, and she is definitely, you know, sort of unimpressed by him in a way that uh, felt very relatable. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, the two of them together was the most I have liked Owen, perhaps because she puts him into a place it's a little more akin to sort of the the star lord slightly buffoonish guy who thinks he's really cool uh territory yeah if there's anything the jurassic world movies need a lot more of it's people who are unimpressed with owen grady (laughs) yes 
<laughs> so yeah, she's she's a nice relief. They have uh, some nice comic moments. Uh, I'm thinking the moment in the elevator when they're they've just almost been eaten by a, a feathered raptor creature, and they they both have the kind of like. I wasn't scared. Were you scared? No. Uh, kind of moment. It's like kind of a comic undercutting of uh, that kind of machismo. I thought that was pretty pleasing. And Omar Sy, like mm. such a small role in the original Jurassic World, like gets uh, much more room here. Still a uh, tiny little role compared to the hundred other people in the movie, but, but kind of befitting of his... Too. Yeah, really, really weird. Uh, that feels like his, like a setup for uh, a series to come or a story to come. The fact that that whole Santos and the smuggling story is just kind of abandoned mid-frame. I don't know if there was more written and cut there, but it, it really kind of feels like that could be a, a spinoff for the inevitable. There are going to be more of these movies. Well, when when there are more of these movies, we'll, we'll probably, you know... We'll... 20 years from now, we'll do an episode where, where this is the classic <laughs> film. and <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll but, pair it with but, Jurassic Park 3. A classic Jurassic Park 3. Oh, well, before we leave, that, that's your that's your underrated Jurassic Park. Mine's Fallen Kingdom. You know, I mean, I, I think, you know, first the first one is head and shoulders above the rest. But I don't know. This series is about, all in all, half good, right? At least half good. Mm, yeah this one kind of leaves a sour taste i guess but but i don't know yeah. all right yeah. well with that anyway Jurassic park is currently streaming on hbo max it's also available through the usual rental services and on 4k blu-ray and dvd Jurassic world dominion is in theaters lots and lots of theaters we'll be right back after the break And just as we brought back feedback from its Patreon exile, we're doing the same with your next picture show, but we're streamlining it a little bit. With each panel, we'll have one of our hosts make a recommendation. Sometimes they'll be relevant to the films we just covered, as in this week's. And this time, that duty falls to me. And I know Tasha's going to want to talk about this too. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk to someone else who has seen it. Uh, a few weeks ago at the Wisconsin Film Festival, I saw Mad God, which is this uh, passion project of Phil Tippett, who worked on uh, stop motion animation and special effects, including Jurassic Park. It's a film he kind of started as a side project, I believe, when he was working on RoboCop 3 and then shelved it and then via kickstarter and the work you know like weekend work from his crew finished it over the years and it's screaming on shutter which is a good home for it because it is a horrifying film i mean there's so much uh innovation and and it's a remarkable technical achievement i really respect it as a piece of art too but it is uh it is a basically a stop motion trip through hell, I have no exaggeration. This is—it's not. I don't think it's specifically hell, but but it may as well be. It is a dreary, beyond dystopian uh, society filled with all kinds of creatures you know, who living li living their sad lives under the under the boot heel of an oppressive force. Everything, everything. See, the weird thing is, everything I'm would use to describe it makes it sound really unappealing. And it is definitely a not for all <laughs> viewers type of film, but I, I, I kind of imagine like a stop motion cross between Hieronymus Bosch and Eraserhead. I think you're really on the right track. Tasha, you've seen this and you've talked to Tippett. What, what, what did you think of this film? 
I mean, I didn't I didn't love it. I didn't enjoy it. When I talked to him about it, like I was kind of trying to pin down where it came from. And the answer is more or less his id. Yeah, it's it's a nightmare. You know, it, it doesn't have a whole lot of story to it. It starts out in a way that makes you think there's going to be a direction and a narrative, but it really doesn't have much of a narrative. It just has a series of set pieces of like horrible faceless things eating each other or smashing each other or, or cutting each other up. It, really does feel like you know dante's tour through hell without the you know the the one-to-one sociological parallels to his time where you're just kind of like seeing things destroy other things and then you know shit those things out in in ways that are go in horrible directions like it's it's very unpleasant but it played at the Fantastic Fest uh, Festival last year, and much as it's you know an, an interesting auteurist piece for the Shutter crowd, it's an interesting auteurist piece for the Fantastic Fest crowd. For the kind of people who love cult cinema and like love seeing the results of somebody with a very specific vision and a whole lot of like talent and skill and experience realize that vision on screen. So yeah, when I when I talked to him about it, he he basically said that the the script, quote unquote, for it was just kind of like a twelve page description of tone. You know, mm. there's there's just there's not a whole lot of if you go in expecting a story, you're going to be disappointed. I I honestly think that the best way to describe this movie is as if the creature from Eraserhead like was the whole movie, and and there were thousands of them living in a society. Uh, just based around that that tone and discomfort. That's what the movie feels like to me. A good time, in other words. That's what you're saying, right? <laughs> well, I mean, keep in mind, like Phil Tippett kind of like got his launch from doing the um, the stop motion in Star Wars, mm-hmm. the the little holographic chess set that Chewbacca's playing with. Like that was a Phil Tippett kind of overnight on his own special. You know, he did things like. He was the animator that did the Tauntauns in Empire Strikes Back. Like he did the bug creatures in, in Starship Troopers. And he, you know, he did Jurassic Park. Like he has a ton of talent and, and vision and very specific experience. So, you know, you can really see it on the screen here in terms of like somebody who knows what he's doing. Yeah, this is a world removed from from that that those fighting chess pieces, but in a world of their own <laughs> over an hour and a half. Uh, anyway, I'm glad I saw it. It's it, it, it's quite the experience. But uh, I think that is it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Uh, we'll be back next week with one, a new one last one last thing before we leave. Phil Tippett, are you aware that Jurassic Park made him a meme? Mm-mm. He was billed in the original Jurassic Park as dinosaur supervisor, mm-hmm. and the meme became this is this is where you had one job came from. He he didn't supervise the dinosaurs well <laughs> enough. And, uh, like Phil Tippett has spent decades just enduring gags and and jokes about how he is a bad dinosaur supervisor and he used to be he's he's a real character and he used to be real crotchety about it if you read interviews uh, with him people always bring it up and he always has something salty to say about it but you know he's mellowed over the years and and kind of embraced his internet fame as uh the bad dinosaur supervisor who doesn't do his job well well, I hope we've done our job well, which is discussing these two films and Phil Tippett and a bunch of other stuff, uh, including uh, Michael Crichton's Dinosaur Arms. Uh, <laughs> that is it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new pairing. Scott, want to set us up for the episodes releasing on June 28th and July 5th? 
Baz Luhrmann's new musical, Elvis, is a typical biopic in many respects, covering the highs and lows of a long career in popular music, much like Walk the Line, or Bohemian Rhapsody, or Rocket Man. Yet Luhrmann's signature style gives the film a unique visual dynamism, with multiple eras in history and pop culture colliding at once. Luhrmann established that approach to period filmmaking with his 2001 musical Moulin Rouge, which adapts La Traviata to a turn-of-the-century French cabaret, but also features performances of Smells Like Teen Spirit and Lady Marmalade, among other popular songs. In our next set of episodes, we'll look at Baz then and now and see what, if anything, has changed. For now, we welcome your feedback on Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, Dominion, anything else film-related, Jurassic or otherwise, that you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And come visit us on Patreon, where you can leave comments about various episodes, check out our newsletter, and check out our bonus features and an ad-free version of every episode. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Genevieve Gosky. Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, uh, the, the Ringer, Guardian, uh, Vulture, and other fine publications. I also spend a great deal of time every week um, writing for uh, The Reveal uh, uh, at thereveal.substack.com. This is a newsletter that I co-author with uh, Keith Phipps. Uh, Tasha? I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can read my interview with uh, Phil Tippett uh, on Polygon.com. As I say, he is quite the character and had a lot to say. Keith Phipps, how about you? Well, as Scott said, you can find me at The Reveal at TheReveal.Substack.com, where I write about stuff with my friend Scott Tobias. Uh, you can I'm a freelance writer. You can follow my work on Twitter at KFIPS3000, where I will link to pieces that I've written at places such as uh, GQ, The Ringer, TV Guide, Vulture, and other fine publications. And you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.